It's a reality that crime has always been one of the most popular genres of fiction. Um, crime saturates television programming, it saturates film, it saturates literature, and of course now we're seeing the incredible phenomenon of crime's uh, participation in podcasts. Serial has become the most popular podcast of all time, broken records for rapidity of downloads. Um, certainly the long fiction narrative series Making of a Murderer has mm. captured audiences worldwide. Who's a fan of serial and making of a murderer here? Mm. Right. They're, they're huge. It's an absolute phenomenon that our engagement with crime and criminology as a, as a literary genre is perhaps bigger than it's ever been. And yet the reality is, is that in a lot of societies like Australia, crime seems to be going down. Now, Kerry, as a criminologist, mm. why are we as fascinated with crime when the majority <coughs> of crimes are, in fact, on the decline? Okay, well, the first thing I have to do is bit of myth-busting there because uh, most property crimes and serious crimes are certainly on the decline, but there's been a, a narrowing of the gap and women's crimes are, are rising and men's are lowering. And uh, so I'll give you a, a simple snapshot of that. In 1965, there was one, one, one woman for 14 men before the courts. And uh, now it's one woman for four men. So what we've had is, uh, and what we have had in particular is a drop off of, of, of crimes, in particular property crimes, um, but we haven't really had a drop off of crimes against women. So it's, it depends on which crime you're talking about. Um, but certainly in America, um, a lot of, uh, as well, it's a global phenomenon, but it is mostly those crimes that criminalise men. And women's, women's prison is, is the opposite. Women's imprisonment is growing by... It's growing faster than men's. Last year it grew by 11%, whereas the national average was 6%. Why is that, why is that gap narrowing? Why are there more women... Because there are more women incarcerated now than there ever have been yeah. in Australia. Is that a global trend? It is. In 1980, there were 14,000 female prisoners in the United States. Now there's 200,000. It's and a lot. And why is that happening? Uh, okay, very simply put, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for it. The first is upcrimming. That is um, a form of criminalising behaviour that wouldn't have ended up getting people in jail before. A lot of that is things like possession of, of drugs. So about 20% is about drugs and minor drugs. About 20% is fraud and petty fraud. And most of that's to do with single mums and, and, and what we call crimes of survivalism. And these are all people who I don't think should ever be in jail. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's just an incredible waste of money. And then, of course, there's, um, there are, in fact, many more women involved in drugs and drug cultures. And um, so they're getting in and they're becoming couriers. It used to be a man's world, the drug world. It's not no longer. And women are preferred as couriers. So I think there is a, an increase in women's involvement there. There has been an increase in women involved in um, violent-related crime. And most of that is connected in some way or another to organised crime and to drug, drug trafficking, etc. Um, so... There, there is a whole range of different reasons, but certainly the gender gap is definitely narrowing. Now, certainly when we look at popular sort of crime fiction, the, the, the genres of crime fiction in television and film, we're looking at a situation where women are usually posited as, posited as victim as opposed to perpetrator. As, uh, you know, a writer in, of crime fiction, Margie, do you see that that 
that protagonist role is changing, uh, victim roles are changing, and with the expansion of populations of women who are incarcerated for violence, do you think that that's uh, a reality that's seeping through in the crime genre? Well, the genre, it's a very interesting genre. I think it works... I've worked as a journalist, so writing a lot about real crime and true crime, and the sort of knowledge that I have informs the crime fiction that I write. But crime fiction truly is a fantasy genre. It's like when you're small and it's like your mom sets you down and she says, once upon a time, it was dark and it was cold and there was a monster. And then the story is about slaying the monster and the princess is rescued. So the, the, the fictional version of crime, that's how it works. It's a catharsis. And you, you were asking, why is it read so often? Why do women read it so often? Either women are totally bloodthirsty. <laughs> I see there a lot here. I remember when you were in Adelaide, everywhere I go and I speak to, to readers, it's mainly women. So perhaps the survival of many husbands is based <laughs> on the fact that you vicariously, you know, get all your dismemberment desires out through the fiction. <laughs> um, I have had a couple of women who've written to me and said, my husband has really irritated. This is his name. Please, can he die in a rather unfortunate <laughs> way in chapter 11? And I've done that. So I think that um, I, you can drop me the names later. So I think that the, the, the fictional form, there is a kind of cathartic thing. because. And one of the questions um, I get asked as a, a woman crime writer is I always get asked why my books are so violent towards women. I've sat on, most of the writers of crime fiction are men. Men never get asked that for some reason, even though they're doing the serial killing over and over. So when I started writing my series, um, which is set in, in the Cape, I was very concerned. I wanted to understand and kind of unpack what these crimes were. So what I've tried to do is disrupt the the spectacle, this pornographic torture spectacle, which is what a lot of crime fiction is, and kind of move it forward, mm -hmm. um, or move it around. But I think one of the reasons why women like to read it and why we like to watch it is that the way, and this is a literary thing, the way that power works in the crime novel is that you sit on the shoulder of the investigator. So you sit at a point of agency and doing you're watching yourself, another woman or your daughter, being tortured and dismembered, but the point of view that you actually can identify with and get a kind of satisfaction from is the fact that you're on the side of justice. You know, the, the crime novel protagonist holds you close. It's that old Raymond Chandler thing who says, down these mean streets, a man who is not himself mean must go. I've got a woman, but she's operating in the same way. So I think that that makes sense of... Um, why women like it so much. Um, it is very difficult to genre, uh, genre to write in as a woman. If I did it again, I would have a man as my main character. It's difficult putting a woman into that thing because it is so dangerous and so threatening. It's been horrible, many of the things that I've looked at. But I have, I really think, come to understand why men do what they do. That's why I was interested in, is how they why men are so violent. I think I figured it out. The figures are really interesting. Um, the crime writer MJ McGrath was talking about her participation in the old peculiar crime literary festival in Britain and revealed that around 80% of the audiences there were women, 80% of the participants in workshops around crime fiction were women, and there was a particularly gendered focus on crime and 
you know, the outcomes of crime and the impacts of crime. Where are the husbands? Yeah, where are the husbands? They didn't survive. MJ, MJ, McGrath, <laughs> MJ McGrath wrote a, as, a, as a crime novelist about talking about how she uses crime as a means to perpetuate the behaviour that she feels that she can't in everyday life. She was brought up by her e editor when she had a scene of her protagonist thumping a man who'd abused her. Is there, is there a temptation to do that within, within a genre that allows characters to behave in such extreme ways? Is it a place for retribution and settlement? Yeah. My headmaster, who was particularly awful, died a terrible death in book one, chapter 11. Um, I don't know, there's, there's something complex, though. there's something we need to look about how crime fiction works. Jennifer and I are both writing about, she writes much better books than I do, they're proper literature. I write <laughs> things that will get you from uh, Sydney to London, and, and, <laughs> you, that's, and then you'll leave it behind the thing for the next person. But um, a very, it's interesting if you come from a violent place writing about violence, because coming from South Africa, where we have the highest rape rates in the world, I think maybe in parts of Afghanistan it's worse, but it's, it's, it, they're really, really bad. We have very high murder rates as well, 20,000, mm. you know, I mean, so, and Mexico is sim similar. So what mm. I have to do as a novelist and other crime writers in South Africa have to do it is to take this mass slaughter of people and make it meaningful again. Mm. So you, we're doing the reverse. Um, I don't know why you Australians don't kill each other more, but you, you're doing a different <laughs> thing in which murder is rare, uh, domestic violence, is prevalent, but it's rare. it gets reported. It goes on the front page. It's astonishing to me that it's worthy, that it's newsworthy. So, so we de I'm dealing with distillation. What's really interesting to me, um, and I've traveled a lot in Scandinavia, and I sell well in Scandinavia, is the most feminist societies in the world have the most gory and vicious and misogynistic crime fiction and the unbelievable torture of women. And I was wondering, is there something there about a displacement of masculinity and repression and all these poor suffering Vikings who've kind of, you know, now have to deal with living with, you know, pushing prams and all of whatever they do in Oslo. But there's, something is happening there. There's some vicarious way of working out misogyny through the crime fiction. And what's interesting, Stig Larsson, the girl who kicked the dragon tattoo, yeah. what he had, I think what crime fiction often does is create, it looks at what's in the shadows. So in the early Stig Larsson, you had the rise of this neo-Nazi right, which was not recognized at all in the political spectrum in Europe. It's now right in the middle. You have the same thing with a certain kind of extreme misogynistic violence, which is also now moving into the center of these very egalitarian societies. So it's kind of diagnostic, I think. Yeah. This is a good opportunity, Jennifer, to bring you into the conversation to talk about the Mexican experience. And certainly as an Australian audience, like our understanding of criminality in Mexico is about the drug cartels and the, the power of a, a extremely machismo drug mafia. In Prayers for the Stolen, you look at these like unbelievably unjust crimes against women, of young women being stolen, taken, disappeared and absorbed into this you know, ultimate flower of machismo and male sort of sexual violence. In a society that is the opposite of Scandinavia, of feminist kind of culture, 
your role as a, as an articulator of justice and that protagonist role as the you know as the avatar into solutions and into justice that Margie's described. What is that difference? Like, what are you coming up against in the work that that you're creating in terms of the the culture around you in Mexico? Well, first of all, my intention is always to write as close as possible a literary work. So that's where I'm coming from first and foremost. Um, the, the subject matter tends to be, in a way, secondary. So, for example, in my novels, uh, except for my only crime novel, because I wouldn't consider Prayers for the Stolen a crime novel. I have one that's called The Poison That Fascinates. But uh, in Prayers for the Stolen, I am describing a reality in Mexico, but I'm describing it without violence. I mean, my, for example, for me, I'm very interested in, in, in giving my characters dignity. Like already their lives have no dignity. So I don't want my novel to, uh, to also put my characters in a situation of no dignity. So for example, when Paula is trafficked and comes back, and explains to her friend, uh, Lady Di, what's happened to her, and she's explaining a gang rape. I would never, as a writer, describe the gang rape. But what does Paula say to Lady Di? She says, what can I tell you? I was like a plastic bottle, water bottle that everybody took a swig of. Mm. You know, that's the way that I go about it. Um, so, so actually, in my books, you, you don't find violence represented in any kind of graphic way or sex. Can I say yeah, something? Yeah, I was just about to ask you, please <laughs> say something. Uh, in my book, Who Killed Lily, uh, I think what was really behind that was in fact to resurrect the dignity of the victim. Mm -hmm. Because this is a real, because she was so, she was so incredibly um, brutalised by gross misrepresentations of her after the death. And she was called a slut, for those of you who don't... She was called the property of the clan. She was... And the, the perpetrators were all called, um, you know, gentle giants and, you know, just, you know, disinhibited by the effects of alcohol. And they just happened to, you know, get a great big rock and slaughter her after they'd raped her. So, you know, there was this kind of really mild reporting of the boys um, and, 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 and this outrage that this crime had brought it people's attention to this community. We just, you know go away, we, don't, we want you to all to go away. She was an outsider. So what I was trying to do there was to reverse that. And I was, this is not fictional, I was, just, I was trying to tell, um, resurrect um, a different version of the truth, but one that was actually of, of dignity to the victim um, because it was incredibly undignified um, what, how she was represented. And in, even in the judge's comments, the, judge, the judge's comments on sentencing even referred to her as a slut, a property of the clan. So, and yet she was a 14-year-old virgin the night that she was in fact raped and, and murdered. So sometimes, so I get, I get your point, and I had, had a really ethical dilemma around how much of the violence do you, do you really tell? And um, there was a lot I did not tell, because um, I had access to all the forensic reports and images and everything. I didn't describe any of that. All I did was repeat the dreadful things that were already in public, and then I tried to turn it around. One of the, sorry, just to come back, one of the interesting things to me and the, the really pleasurable things about the crime novel is that it seems, the fiction, when you fictionalise crime, is that it seems as if it's about the dead 
the person who's been murdered. And in, actually, in my books, not everybody dies. Quite a lot of them are subject to other kind of crimes. But what they're actually about, for me, is the resilience of people who survive. That's how I would mm. put it. And the desire for social justice. Um, you know, because there's the, the impulse of, of good crime fiction, or crime fiction that I like and that I try to write, is where it's a way of balancing the books. And in a way, what you do is restore, which you've called both called dignity. To me, it's mm. a restoration of the narrative and continuity of a person's life. And I realized that that was kind of what I needed to do when I was researching my very first book, which is about a serial, um, a series of rapes by a serial perpetrator, rapes and murders. And I, I do work for rape crisis, and I was working with a, a young rape survivor, and she, she told me that, she said, the worst thing, apart from the assault, what happens to you when you're raped is that that's all you become. Mm. And she decided not to tell people because she said, everything I do before, after, has just come down to this one thing. She said, I feel like I'm frozen in time, oh, yeah. which I found as a novelist a fascinating thing because I thought what you do when you have your victim in your book is you have this 100,000 words in which you can restore the continuity of the person's life. Mm -hmm. And many things, mm. she did many things. She was many things and then this thing came from the outside and mm. knocked her off course. So it's how, in fiction for me, how you can restore to that, that dignity is like a narrative continuity. And rape survivors that I know is the healing, you know, there's always a fracture, there's always a, a super glue thing that can break again. But to me and the survivors that I've seen who, who say I'm, I'm kind of okay, is it when they can go back into a continuity of life again, outside of that flashbulb moment which just freezes you for mm. however long it does. As mm. women writers, and Jennifer could answer this first, is there a particular sense of mission in your work for representing w women within these contexts, within the context of, you know, very established narratives about what women can be in relationship to violence? Is there a sense of mission there? I don't think I've ever written really with a sense of mission, but I've written enough books now that when I look back and see the landscape of what I've written, I realize that I'm always writing about the unprotected, so mm. that, that means women are there all the time. And um, I realize there's themes that fascinate me. For example, I'm always interested in how those who don't have power exercise power. Uh, so, so, yeah, not really a mission, but a, an awareness that I do have themes that are continuously coming up again and again. Yeah. I think my work's definitely driven um, by passion for justice, if, if you've ever read it. Um, and certainly a quest for justice, because we have so little of it for women in our criminal justice system. When they go to the system, they feel the system, if, they, if, if they're even believed, the system re-victimises them. The system, trick, the system defines them by that moment. That's a very good insight. And they just they become the rape victim or the DV victim. And of course, the, and of course our criminal justice system absolutely brutalises them. And... It's also very disempowering to be a victim and it's much more empowering to be a survivor. So that's why the, the kind of re, it, 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 that kind of restoration of the status of survivor is a very empowering one. But of course, when you're dead, 
you can't do it yourself. And that's why I wrote Who Killed Lily, because I, because, well, I'm not, was driven to write it partly because her, her, fa her, her matriarchal family were very keen. I mean, they were, they were just so hurt, and so were all the girls of Newcastle. They were just so hurt that such a mistruth could be put about and not corrected by our criminal justice system. So, yes, driven for a quest for justice, driven for a quest, and of course we don't have, if you're dead in our criminal justice system, you have no rights. Mm. So they can say what they like about you absolutely what they like and they said the most hideous things and they often do. Does anyone remember the, um, is it the Brimble case, you know, the woman who mm. was killed on the, on the ship? You know, when we go, yeah, remember that? How many times did we hear about her, what she did, how she, what her behaviour was, the, sexual, the sex that happened before her and how many times we hear about that? We hardly heard anything about the brutality and the masculinity of that horrible bunch of squad of, of blokes who, 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 you know, who engaged in, in that awful um, um, sex and, and drugs that happened before her um, very unfortunate death. So, you know, we, we have these cases over and over again and they, what they do is they, 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 are, they always follow a narrative construction. This is in reality. But what they are is they're misrepresenting the realities because they always want the victim, a female victim, to be illegitimate. So we often have these narrative, the narrative strategies of reporting women who are victims as, oh, she asked for her own attack. Yes, it was her fault. What was she doing? What was she wearing? Was she drunk? Um, so th this is the kind of way in which our press in, in particular reports crime. And I think sometimes these novels and and, and sometimes books that I've written and others, we're, we're about a counter to that noise, you know, that, that, that really misogynistic representation of women and crime. Jennifer. Yeah, I just want to mention something that happened in the past 24 hours in Sydney, Australia, to me. Um, last night at dinner, I realised that we were all talking, as we are now, about women being victims. And my crime novel is a litany of women assassins. So, I mean, there's the other side to it where, where, where um, the women are assassins in crime novels, too. So, the reason I'm telling this story is that I have, in the novel, there's a chorus. It's, it's fiction, but at the end of every chapter, there's a chorus, and a real woman assassin speaks from history and tells her story. And that book was rejected by my publishers. And so I had this editorial meeting, and it was all men. And they said, you know, Jennifer, um, you know, we really like your novel, but you know, the chorus, which is all the real women assassins that half of them have killed their husbands, right, or boyfriends, we really would like to publish this book, but without the choruses. How would you feel about publishing this novel without the chorus? And I realized last night in the hotel, of course, I was being censored because these were real women assassins uh, killing men. So I told them that I wouldn't accept the publication of the novel without the chorus, and it was in a drawer for four years, and then it came out later with a different group of editors and publishers. It's a really important point to look at the gap between crime fiction and crime fact, mm -hmm. and the fact that in fiction we're subject to all of those filters. Um, publishing is overwhelmingly the higher you get up the building, mm -hmm. the more men you find, despite the vast numbers of women at the bottom of the building. Um, and certainly, what does it mean? Like, Margie, you've had 
experience, for those of you who don't know, this is an amazing detail of Margie's experience. At the age of 21, as a young anti-apartheid activist, Margie was arrested in South Africa and imprisoned and charged with treason, which at the time faced the death penalty. And that gap between the experience of, you know, the real justice system, um, you know, the real essence of women who are trapped within those structures of power, how does the conventions of crime as we understand it as fiction impact on society's broader understanding of how justice actually works? They're unconnected. They truly are unconnected. I mean, I'll tell you a little anecdote about being in prison. Prison day is very long. 23 hours lockdown, one hour exercise. So we were picked up, kept as political detainees, and there was a woman who had been in detention for months in solitary confinement, and then I was arrested with about 15 of us were picked up at the same time, and we were put in a cell. We walked past her cell, so we would talk to her when we went past. And the guard said to us, we weren't allowed to talk to her. Um, otherwise, you know, it would be bad for her and would be bad for us. So we thought, okay, we'll sing. So we walked, when we walked to the exercise yard, we would sing to her. And we did that and they said, you must stop. And we said, you won't, you can't stop us from singing. We came out and they welded her window closed with a piece of steel. And from behind it, I could, we could hear her singing in Kosa, this beautiful hymn. And I just thought, how long can you sing in the dark? You know what I mean? It was, it was so uh, cruel. There was such inhumane cruelty. But the, the experience I had in prison, which was with the security police, actually the prison guards were quite, um, they were just worried that the police would kill one of us and then they would be blamed. And the South African police was, they had many expert ways of making people disappear in detention, but um, it was actually my experience in prison, um, being interrogated in the middle of the night, they wake you up, you just got your nightie, you've got no underwear on you in this tiny room with these horrible men, and one sits here and one's like just close enough that all your hair stands on it. It's really, the power is made absolutely apparent to you. And it was looking into the, these men's eyes and there was nothing human that reflected back at me. I was just a monster to them. I was an object anything could be done to that cut me out of the measure of what was human. And I understood in that moment, it was really a chilling feeling, it, it like removes your soul, because I think we exist in connection with other people. The African word for it is Ubuntu, which is that you live and you exist in the presence of others. And that was the essence of power. That's what I've written about in all my books, is what happens when someone, and it's usually a man, looks at another person and doesn't see them as human. Mm. I've worked with prisoners subsequently. I did um, create a writing workshop with uh, maximum security prisoners, and it was very interesting working with them having been a prisoner myself, because I never told them, but I n knew what it felt like to have this kind of endless time. In real crime, there's no resurrection. There's no solution. It's just a mess. The people who end up in prison, they, they're almost always for reasons of poverty, mm. um, 
mental instability, neglect, the, the men too. I mean, there, there's horrific stuff going on. And I wanted to ask you if the prisons in Australia are privatized like they are in the United States, which really profits off its prisons so enormously. So there's no solution in true crime. But there, what you're looking at is, is a totally different thing. There's a different, you know, crime fiction is storytelling. It is once upon a time this horror came and then we fixed it and we fixed it and we fixed it. And the serial attraction is that we live in very unstable and fearful times. It's, these are novels, uh, you know, all crime novels are really novels about ordinary people who are quite powerless um, and where you want to see the justice kind of done. It gives you a sense of it's possible. But it's um, fiction. It's really not how things happen. In true life, I know enough people who've been victims of like, sexual assault or their families have survived somebody who's been murdered. People don't feel better when the perpetrators go to jail. No. You really don't. It doesn't... It's better than them not going to jail, but you're trying to deal with broken things that can't be fixed. Um, I'm going to ask people who want to ask some questions of the panel to gather at our two microphones. And while people are getting organised, there they are, the marvellous microphones. Um, Kerry, if we're constantly turning crime into entertainment, what is the impact of that? As, as a person who works within the system to advocate for justice, mm -hmm. who does have a sense of mission, what are we being trapped by in, uh, in, in terms of the way that we come to understand society as a culture on the outside? Yes, we come to it with cultural narratives. One of them is that women... Um, we have these very deeply ingrained beliefs, and men in the audience may have it too, that it's primarily men who are perpetrators who commit really violent, heinous crimes. So the problem is that when you do have a woman who does commit some really heinous crime, uh, we have no way of understanding it or interpreting it, and we tend to make that person out to be doubly monstrous. You see, doubly, doubly monstrous. The example here would be the woman who skinned and uh, ate her husband, you know, the Aberdeen murderer. Um, Wasn't she, she just hungry? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she was quite mad. Uh, but of course, uh, and then of course, um, we're very punishing to women who then breach that. And of course, the Lindy Chamberlain case is, is, is a, it's an old one now, but you know, it's, it's very easy for us to construct women who are accused and sometimes falsely accused of killing their children or their baby as being like evil, like, like inherent, like, like so much more evil than a man who might kill his entire family. So we tend to have these uh, um, cultural, cultural scripts or narratives that we fit comfortably in when they're all reported, but they have deep gendered biases. And so women who commit crimes tend to be represented as doubly monstrous, doubly bad, and they tend to get a really hard time um, and they have a really hard time in jail. A really hard time. And of course, that their relationship with the male guards is, is often incredibly like what you were talking about. And uh, um, if you, this is written by uh, Piper Kerman, who's, who's speaking in the other room as we speak here. And she's written this, and it's in fact her biographical account of her year in prison. And I recommend it to you, but it captures exactly what you were talking about just how the women are just totally dehumanised by male guards and have to strip off in front of them, have to shower in front of them, um, have to have um, all sorts of tests in front of them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's what... This is real crime, 
but it's also about but it takes up your point about women as offenders um, as well and women can be 20% of of women it's more than 20%. It's almost a third of women in jail are, in fact, for, for violent offenders. 8% of them are in jail for homicides, although most of their homicides are of violent partners or children. However, I've also written about women as terrorists, and women have now overtaken about 65% of assassins in the world are now women. So, and they tend to be more effective than men. Um, do we have so a question? So I'm not naive. <laughs> A question up there, yes. Yep. Oh, yep, okay. Um, my question's kind of a little bit related to that, um, what we're talking about with um, female perpetrators and how they're spoken about. Um, I recently watched a documentary about Eileen Wuornos, the America's first female serial killer, and I found that the characterization of her was either as a complete victim or is completely evil. Yeah. And I find that like, if you pay attention to any other um, characterizations of men who have been in similar positions, there's almost like a clinical conversation about it and there's a level of agency that's given. Um, and I was wondering whether you, all of you had found that this lack of agency was definitely something that was missing from the conversation about like women can't seem to make a decision to do something that other people would seem to think is morally wrong, like, I definitely find that that exists, and I was just wondering whether the three of you had found similar. Yeah, I can, I've thought about that a lot, um, about how um, evil and women and agency kind of work, mm. because, first of all, there are way fewer female perpetrators of violence than yeah. men. One of the things, the mistakes I think we make, and I think it's a mistake about the discussion of rape, most rape victims are women. Most rape survivors are women. Men do get sexually assaulted and raped as well. So there's a, there's a kind of, in the last few years, I've seen a kind of gloss and a, some kind of political correctness that we must make a parity. Most rape perpetrators are men and the victims are female. And it doesn't help anybody, I don't think, to say that to say that it's not that way. Um, so with, in the work I've done in South Africa, the vast majority of perpetrators are men. There are women in prison as well, and you've also rising conviction rates, but for very different crime. They're not in jail for hijacking um, a car and shooting five people. They're in jail for stealing a chicken or getting into a fight or doing some fraud yeah. or psychological stress issues where they kill their children, which is a whole different... Um, kind of thing, but one of the, with, with women and violence and often where you get this sort of extreme reaction with Eileen Warnos, for instance, is what happens when women who have been assaulted and assaulted and assaulted, what happens when they react, finally stand up where they kind of, there's this reaction right against the woman. And what's amazing to me is that it happens, it takes so long to happen and what it means to be, to, to be active. And agency is often conflated with hitting back. Another way of thinking of agency of women in very stressful and violent situations is how resilient they are in surviving those things without doing those things. It's a different form of agency. They protect the children, they keep the children alive, they keep themselves alive. So we could look at it 
um, in that way. I mean, with serial killers, very interesting. South Africa has, South Africa, Russia, and the US have the highest number of serial killers. And we, I'm proud to tell you, have the highest catch rate of serial <laughs> killers. And we have a psychological crimes unit that trains people from all over the, um, the world. One achievement we have made racially in South Africa is that in the US, for instance, this is a sideline, if you have white victims, it's almost certain that it's a white perpetrator. Our serial killers kill everybody. So the rainbow nation, <laughs> and they're white ones and black ones, and they don't discriminate racially. So that makes the profiling quite tricky. <laughs> but um, I don't know if I should be happy about that statistic or not. <laughs> Is that progress? Question. I would just like to give you a wonderful piece of advice from the, the head of the psychological crimes unit. It's a very serious man called uh, Major General Labolskachny. You see, and he, I said to him, because there's so many, and I said to him eventually, and he had this little handout about what to do, and he said, you must, you know, if you get into a lift and you're worried, he said, women have an intuition of fear, but we get taught to be polite and nice. And he said, if you ever feel afraid, he said, shout, scream, wet your pants, run, attack the person. You said you can apologize later. And he says to me, remember this thing, <laughs> this really heavy South African accent, which I don't have. He says to me, remember one thing. He says, embarrassment fades, but death doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken that as a very good survival <laughs> strategy. Mm. Um, Jennifer, in a, in a society where uh, like agency is the issue and, and the scene that you depict in Prayers for the Stolen is you know, these women who are at the mercy mm -hmm. of not only crime but a system of crime that's overwhelming and omnipresent. You know, how do we restore ag like agency in the popular narratives of, of women versus crime? Well, I mean, my answers are always literary. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not an expert on these subjects. I mean, I can say, for example, um, in the book that I wrote, the crime book that I wrote, where I have all the real, real women assassins that I studied speaking, my intention wasn't, uh, like, from the point of view of a criminologist. I said to myself, if I have a woman killer in my novel, what is her tradition? I was looking at the women killers as her tradition. Who came before her? How did they behave before her? So for me, it was a, it, these were literary decisions. So, so I have, you know, everybody's there. Lizzie Borden is there. I studied all the, um, uh, the, the, the court um, uh, transcripts. Uh, terrorist Danu, who killed Ra uh, Rajiv Gandhi by mm. pretending to be pregnant, and, but she had an explosive in her dress, mm. um, a lot on Munchausen syndrome, because women have a mm. lot of Munchausen syndrome. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I can't really talk about this, you know, other than from a literary point of view. So even when I was writing up about these women, there's a literary intent in what I'm doing. And some of them are very funny. I mean, if a woman kills her husband with a frying pan, is it ethical to then cook in that frying pan, <laughs> you know? And then some are very poetic and some are very dark. A lot of killing of children, killing of children, a lot of nurses killing patients, famous cases. So, I mean, that's, I entered from this other door. Um, but to so. answer the question that was asked before, what you're doing, though, is disrupting that narrative that strips women offenders of agency by actually exploring their realities in, in complexity. 
And what she was talking about, I think, was, was the way in which there, there tends to be a very black and white construction of female offenders as, as, as having lacking agency because we cannot, we don't have a theory of female crime. We, have, we completely lack a narrative around that. And so we, we either, so either invisibilise them or we monsterise them. But we, we can't, what we can't do is, is turn them into real people and try to understand them in reality. So this literary way, to me, seems like a way of actually undoing those, that, that kind of binary that we're stuck in. Absolutely. Question? Um, uh, I've really appreciated what you've said today. I'm a clinical psychologist. So I work with a lot of complex trauma and rape victims and people you've had. I've worked, um, I worked in King's Cross with homeless people for five years. And one of the things that um, really disturbs me about fiction, crime fiction or the you know, CSI, the kind of shows on telly, in particular Underbelly, is the glorification of the gangster. And in fact, you know, what was happening at those times was abhorrent. Um, I lived in Brunswick during Mockbell's era, he was two streets behind us. What they did to the children and women in those situations was absolutely appalling. And yet the way our media portrays it is that these are, you know, these men living on the edge and they're in drugs and they're really, you know, you know, in terms of um, they're really exciting kind of lifestyles, the same with sort of the Comancheros or Hell's Angels. Mm. And I have found myself, I almost didn't come to this talk, but I was because I have to close myself to mm. having that information come in because I live it every day with my patients that I see. But I'm so pleased to hear what you say. So, sorry, I guess this is a comment. Yeah, but I'm so I pleased need a to question. hear what you're saying. Don't make me go Tony Jones on no, you. No, I know, but I, I guess I'm so appreciative that you're talking about giving women agency or or kind of, you know, in trauma treatment, you do narrative work. You, mm. re, you reinstate the, nar the narrative in a person's mm. life when it's been completely... Um, uh, disintegrated. So, so is there so a question lovely. coming? No, no. I'm just it's a comment to say that. Because we but have, I do think we're running out of time. Thank you, thank you very much. That's thank great. Thank you. Thanks for your I just had a quick question to follow up. I think it's Margie. Margie, um, you said before you'd figured out why men are violent. If you just elaborate on that. Why I'm men violent? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you figured it out. You're thinking. I did figure it out. It took me five hundred thousand words and ten years, and it actually links. With, with what um, you were saying, gangsters are bullies and thugs. That's it. They're not glamorous. There's nothing. I saw, I've worked with gangsters in the Cape. We have like really, really horrendously violent gangsters. And this will get to your point of why they are so violent. I've witnessed this really peculiar thing. I went into this guy as a general, so very high up in this, in this one very violent, huge gang. And um, I went there with a cop who took me in. So it's all a bit fucked up, is the, be the best way of describing South Africa's cops and gangsters and, and me in the middle of it. And he stood there, this massive, like, swaggering man, like 18 or 20 young men, unemployed, sharp, urban, no jobs. Okay, so there's one, one part of it. So he sat there like a king. Um, sort of bare-chested and, and very... They love journalists because you're another person listening to this thing. And sitting next to him was this young girl, probably 15 or 16, his girlfriend. And she had um, this very disgusting sweet called a sweetie pie, like a chocolate thing that you give to children. And she was breaking... As he was talking, she was breaking tiny pieces off and placing it on his tongue and feeding him like a baby. It was the most sickening, and, and there are guns everywhere, machine guns, and he's got guns everywhere. And there's something around 
the split off between the, the male, between the masculine and feminine. In most gendered spaces, like prisons and gangsters' houses, which are kind of the essence of it. And this, into this weird situation, a little boy wandered in. He was three years old. And this cop I was with says to the gangster, you must stop what you're doing for your child, for your son, because you need to put this example. And he looked at the child and was, this silence like ice ran around this woman. I thought, I'm going to die, because he couldn't bear the connection of him back to a child, the child that he was, was that had been cut off. It's very Freudian. It's really simple Freudian stuff. Anything that could be feminine, anything to do with care is anathema. And I think that why they're so violent is if you live in a hyper-masculine society, like we all do, it's a bit more polite in Australia than in other places, but it's pretty much the same. All men know that the reason they're alive is their mother didn't kill them. <laughs> she didn't abort them, she didn't drown them, she didn't strangle them, she gave them enough food. So every single human being, male human being, is alive because his mother didn't kill her, and yet kill him. The thing that's most reviled and hated in all our cultures is women. So in their heads is this paradox that the, you are alive because the most hated and reviled and lowly creature, which gives you your size, is the reason that you're not alive. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but there are complexities around race and aggression and all sorts of things, but I really think that's at the heart of it. And so if you change perceptions of how women are perceived and measured, you will get an amelioration. So men with better relationships with their mothers are less and with the feminine as it's represented. That all sounds very Jungian and hippie-ish, but I think that's at the heart of it. We have time for one more question. Uh, my question's to Kerry. Thank you for your book on Lee. I just wanted to ask how the response was um, when you gave her that dignity from the community, but particularly, particularly the family mm. and also the police, how they reacted. <laughs> because when my, we reported my sister missing, uh, the police officer basically told us that she was a jing on walkabout and we needed to get over it. Yes. And she was held for 10 days. They didn't search for her. And, um, and then she was brutally murdered. Yes, yes, so, yes. So, Very, there's yeah. some strong similarities. I think I know the case you're talking about. Um, well, uh, the, the overwhelming majority of the police was that I was just a, a nutcase. Um, they, um, it was very complicated, but there was a vicious response from the police. I mean, I ended up becoming, um, you know, I got subpoenaed towards the PIC. I was cross-examined for three days. I was turned into, I had my life turned upside down. I had my phones tapped. I had my medical records. So I was turned into this, you know, they tried to hystericise me. Um, they tried to, They tried all the tactics that they did on women um, that they would do on victims. They tried to make out that they even tended the evidence of my husband and, and my children and my girl. You know, it was just awful what I went through behind the scenes. They put me, when I was under um, subpoena, um, I, I could only use a male toilet because they usually only ever subpoenaed men and so there was no female toilet. So there was, there was a hot, there, there, it was a really horrible time in my life. Um, but, yeah, so that was the response of the police and that was the response of the Police Integrity Commission. Um, uh, 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 it, that, that were worse. 
Uh, they were absolutely worse uh, because I was criticising the entire justice system and how, how the and what I was really saying was law does not equal justice, and so I, I was ganged up on by the judges and the whole lot got together to gang up on me to try and discredit me. It didn't work. Anyway, it didn't work. And you know what? When I when uh, the judge in the the when the judge in the case, he said, one of these days, Professor Carrington, you're going to be judged by your peers. And it's kind of really derogatory way. And I, I quoted him when I was given the, the Life Achievement Award. <laughs> <laughs> and I thanked him for his encouragement. <laughs> Could I be so cheeky as to ask one last question? No, Professor Carrington, I'm would sorry. you do it again? Um, would I do it again? Oh, I don't think my husband would let me. <laughs> no, I, um, if I had my life over again, I, I would do it again because I'm really passionate about young girls and young women who are victims of violence and who are where the law does not equal justice. So, yes, I am doing it again, but I'm doing it again and I'm always doing it, but I'm not doing it in a way where I can let them get at me like I did last time. <laughs> Thank you very much everybody. Um, that has been True Crime versus Real Crime. Obviously, we've only got an hour, which is heartbreaking. I have been so totally intimidated being on this panel with these incredible women. <laughs> Can you please give a huge round of applause to Kerry Carrington, Jennifer Clement and Margie Orford. Thank you. Thank you.